Good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue in our series, Walk Worthy. We'll read verses 1 through 8 today. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, which was the first scripture reading, for those of you tracking along, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. That was the second scripture reading, conflict in Thessalonica. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. A text that is about as straight forward as it gets in Paul with one obvious point that Paul's conduct in Thessalonica was characterized by pure motives and selfless love. That his conduct in Thessalonica was characterized by pure motives and selfless love. And what you see is what you get here. Very, very straightforward, so much so that I'm actually going to preach it a little bit differently than you're probably used to hearing. This begins an apologetic section similar superficially to the defense Paul gives in Corinthians, but different in most other ways. There is no one questioning the nature of his apostolic authority here. There were no competing super apostles, as it were. But through a mirror reading of this text, which is an interpretive, it's a hermeneutical technique where you are trying to understand, in this case, the charges that were being levied against Paul by the response that he gives, okay? Um, We can put together that they were questioning Paul's earnestness, they meaning not necessarily those in the church at Thessalonica, but those around them. There was a climate of questioning Paul's earnestness and sincerity Um, and questioning his motives, particularly because of how, from one perspective, and we're going to circle back to this, you know, he did, he ran out. He ran out. He's going to give a bit of an apologetic of his ministry there, his leaving, and his expressed desire to have returned despite not being able to do so. 
in this next section. And that same background probably informs why he mentions in the last section that the Thessalonians saw what kind of men they proved to be. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, chapter 1, verse 5. And so after the introduction, he begins a defense, again, of the nature of his time there, his departure, and his desire to have returned. He says, for you know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. It's literally the word empty there, empty. And it's up for debate what exactly he is saying. Popular suggestion is it wasn't empty, meaning it wasn't without fruit. It wasn't unfruitful. It certainly was not without fruit. There was a church established. Okay, fair enough. But notice that there's an immediate contrast that follows. And if we're listening carefully to the Scripture, we're expecting a contrast. You get a but there. And that's not the same word, kai, that can be translated and or but. It's that strong, contrasting but, Allah. That our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God, a phrase that I've used multiple times already this morning in preparation for this. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So notice that our coming to you was not in vain, but it was what? We're going to try, we're, we're looking, however we understand empty, we're trying to get the opposite of however we understand empty in the contrast. That's how a contrast works. And in verse 2, we don't see anything about positive fruit or positive effects. It's not as though it says, but there were a ton of fruitful things that happened, even though they no doubt did. Instead, he draws attention to their suffering and how they were shamefully treated, and yet, despite those things, are still there preaching the gospel. That's what he says. So emptiness here is much better understood, not in terms of effectiveness, but earnestness, authenticity, purposiveness, our visit to you, Thessalonians, it didn't lack convictional purpose like so many other popular teachers who come through that place. And we run out as soon as things got hard. In other words, we didn't come with empty rhetoric and social posturing, he says. And he gives the examples of hardship in Philippi and in Thessalonica to say, listen, no one who didn't really believe this stuff would continue to show up and do this. You know, people are persecuted and even die all the time for falsehood. But no one, almost no one, is going to die for some, something that they know is false. Like There are people who are confidently and badly mistaken who go to their death for false gods, understood. But they truly believe it. Paul's saying here, this isn't empty. This is not just empty rhetoric. We are earnest. We are serious. We had a purpose in coming to you. It was not an empty visit. Rather, the, despite the challenges and, and in vindication of their authenticity, they had boldness in our God, is, what, is that phrase. We had boldness in our God because of those things to declare to you the gospel of God. It's a redundancy to center God here in the midst of much conflict. Required boldness in our God. Well, if, if the Thessalonians can be commended for imitating Paul, which we got in the last section, certainly it's fair for us to do the same, it would seem. But if that's the case, 
it raises a question here that we need to answer, or at least try to answer, or at least think about more clearly if we can't come up with an answer. And that is boldness in our God versus just boldness. What's the difference? Why does it matter? As I mentioned, claims to Christian persecution in America are often very over-exaggerated, and yet it is nevertheless the case that living faithfully to God's Word is a marginalized thing to do, particularly in in areas of marriage, family, sex, gender, those holding to a Christian ethical framework uh, thankfully, are not being run out of their houses or put into prison in America, in, at least in the vast majority of cases, but they're often scoffed at. Most of the institutions of higher learning are explicitly and admittedly even anti-evangelical in their dispositions toward the professors they hire. Those op- opposing certain lifestyle choices are told that they hate certain people because of that, or that in rejecting a certain lifestyle or a certain self-identification that they're rejecting people, them Cells. And I have to say, Thanksgiving's coming up. Christmas is coming up. And generally, that's where you feel some of that tension. Because everyone's got a couple family members who you're going to clash with. You can pick your examples. Maybe you don't like some of mine, but, but here's the idea. Representing Christ faithfully outside of the Christian home, the Christian job, the Christian school requires boldness in God. And if Paul can ask for prayer that he would declare the gospel boldly as he should in Ephesians 6, then we should take notice. But here's here's why I make the point here. I've noticed that there is a different kind of boldness than what Paul prays for and demonstrates. It's not a boldness in our God. It's not a boldness rooted in God. His promises, a humble disposition, the concern for truth, ultimately trusting God to prevail. It's it's not courage that comes from the truth and trust for a particular purpose. It's just boldness in the abstract. Boldness. The virtue boldness. But here's the thing. You don't have to have God to be bold. So there's some, what's the difference between boldness in our God and just bold? There's a lot of courageous, bold people who don't have anything to do with God. They can still be courageous and bold. Understood as just this neutral virtue and then applied in the service to God. So I might be have boldness, and I can be bold as a charging into battle, and I can be bold over here. And so what this is saying, I'm just take that kind of boldness, and I just apply it in the service of God. That, that would, that might, that's the idea. Um, Alistair McIntyre wrote a book, an extremely influential book in 1981 called After Virtue, not for the faint of heart. Um, uh, but uh, he he makes he gives an analysis that is worth me trying to repeat here. He says that when we take virtues like courage, like boldness, he says when we take it out of the context of a particular purpose and a particular goal, purpose of life, a particular framework, 
that we lose grasp of what we're talking about. He comments, he's a brilliant man, he's an intellectual professional athlete, one of those people who's just disgustingly smart. Um, he talks about in the Enlightenment, that framework, that there was a purpose, a telos, an end goal for the human life and a framework in which to think about moral virtues, those things, that framework was thrown out. But what was left was the words, the moral fragments that were left, the same words. Everyone tried to continue on with the same moral language and concepts and virtues, but outside of the framework, there, there was a way to live and a goal-oriented way to think about ourselves as human beings and in our context, created in the image of God. Um, and what he says is, well, so what you do is you have the framework, and then you have all these moral pieces, and boldness would be one of them, but then you trash the framework, and you just have these little fragments that are left over. He has these little fragments left over, and he makes fun of people who are, he, he's, he's a little bit snarky, but he makes fun of the whole enterprise of trying to develop little theories of these fragments outside of the framework. He likens it to uh, someone who found parts of a watch and coming up with like theories of springs and hands without knowing what a watch was. He says, we're just, we have the little parts and everyone's trying to identify what they are. He says, well, what do you get lost in? You get lost in just emotivism, relativism. Everyone gets to come up with their own version of what boldness or courage or whatever is because we're trying to understand it in this universal way and then just plug it into a variety of scenarios. That's his first point. His second point is this. How do we come to learn moral concepts? By the people who wrote the dictionary, how people use the word, and he talks about looking to cultural characters that embody those moral concepts. So let's take boldness. Okay, How do you understand the concept of boldness? The dictionary, how people use the word, and the cultural characters that are said to embody boldness. And they don't have to be even from your time frame, just popular among your time. Leonidas, leading the 300. Dr. King, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Klan. It's Maximus Decimus Meridius from Gladiator. Braveheart, whatever it is, that's what he says are cultural characters. He said when you combine the cultural characters that are said to embody a particular virtue, you combine that with who wrote the dictionary and how people use the words, he says that's how people come up when this is divorced from a larger framework. That's how people understand virtues. So when they read here, they read boldness in our God, and they just read boldness understood culturally, but then just in the service of God. What he says is you just get lost with everyone picking what boldness looks like. I really like the Leonidas version of boldness. Well, I like this version of boldness. Well, that person's, that person's version's a little too rude or whatever. I like the Dr. King version of boldness. You know, he was bold, but he wasn't always mouthing off like this person. Well, I like this. And he says, how do you adjudicate between those outside of a framework where there's a purpose for it? He says, you don't. Everyone picks their definition and their expression and tries to give arguments to justify it, but they don't have them, and that's why no one agrees. His whole book is trying to call us back to some sensible understanding of how to understand moral concepts. Now, why? Okay, so end. Please don't try to go read this, by the way. Why this big philosophical backstory? Because I just want to question, in light of what says here, uh, 
that in being bold for God amidst cultural conflict, if we would notice boldness for God, which has a purpose, which is purpose-driven, which is oriented, and just kind of boldness, understood culturally, and then Christianized. A Christianized version of generic boldness. Or is it very specific kind of boldness that is rooted in God for specific purposes, depending on certain things and aiming towards certain ends? And what I would say here is that the understanding of boldness that we see in Paul especially clashes with much but not all of our cultural understandings of boldness. We read in Acts 17 that Paul headed out. He ran. He got lowered down in a basket in Damascus when his house was... Would Leonidas have done that? Hmm? Dr. King would have gone to jail. He did go to jail. What's wrong with Paul? Why wouldn't he go to jail? Oh, wait, he did too. Many times. So, so what's going on here? What is, was Paul bold or was he not? Why, didn't, why is the story not back there in Acts that when the Thessalonians came and said, you're causing a ruckus, he said, here I stand for Jesus. Why did he run away? What I want to suggest is there's a difference between boldness in our God that is supposed to accomplish a particular purpose and is oriented within a mission and just generic, one register, one tier boldness that many of us have, no faults of our own, imbibed by simple cultural understanding. A boldness that is, can like Paul, celebrate weakness. A boldness that's humble and a boldness that in some cases, depending on what the mission is and why I'm being bold, is compatible with running. And again, you can say, Maximus would never have run off. Okay, so much for Maximus, but this is the kind of boldness that I'm interested in. Purposive, principled, measured boldness that is, that is harder to get your hands around than reading the dictionary or looking to a cultural character. And so I want to leave you with that. I feel like I've kind of pulled a grenade and not offered a solution outside of a framework. But how much of our understanding of boldness Against the culture, it's coming at our... How much of it is boldness in God? And how much of it is the same boldness that would just really serve you well in the Marines? Okay? He continues on. Paul continues on. After talking about his boldness in God, he says, For our appeal does not spring from any error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He says our ministry there wasn't on the basis of falsehood. It wasn't on the basis of a mistake. Okay, It wasn't on the basis of subtle sin. It wasn't on the basis uh, of trying to manipulate you. It doesn't spring from error or impurity or attempt to deceive. But then he says something very interesting. He says, but as someone who has been approved by God, God Himself approved us for this task. He has been vetted by God for this particular task. Not just anyone can sign up to do what he's doing, is what he's saying. Yeah, the Thessalonians, the gospel will go out from them, but they haven't been approved by God to do exactly what Paul is doing in this particular sense with this particular kind of boldness that he needs for, to accomplish the mission. He said, we didn't have some weird dream decide to start a religion. All right. Furthermore, he says, 
the Lord tests us. That's what it says. Look, do you see how that's in the perfect tense? Actually, you can't tell in English, but it it, it reads present tense in English. But tests us. Tests our hearts has the idea in the Greek of something that happened, but the effects continue up to the present. So it wasn't just like you got in the door and then they could kind of do whatever they want once they got approved. God continues to, as it were, test our heart, examine us. It's the same word that might be used of a politician who is seeing if they were approved to fit, in, uh, excuse me, fit to serve in public service. Could use that same language. And he says, with that perspective, it should be very, very clear. Okay, because of who has approved us, who tests us, and who entrusted us with this gospel, that we aren't out to please man. In fact, if we are, have you seen our reception here in the last couple stops? We're trying to please man. We're doing a really bad job. Horrible job. Like our PR team is a total failure if we are out here trying to please man. But Thessalonians, you didn't entrust us with the gospel. You didn't approve us. You don't test our hearts. Guess who we're concerned about pleasing? We're concerned about pleasing the one who did, not you. Or anyone else for that matter. We're not after the praise of man, he says. He goes on, for we never came. And this is where that mirror reading comes in. We're we're, we're projecting back on what is likely to have been said to justify why he would give these pushbacks. That's what mirror reading is. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness to that. Nor did we seek glory from people. Again, the praise of man shows back up. Whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. That word flattery there has almost no usage in ancient Greek at all. Ancient or Koine Greek. There's like almost nothing to say. Except that it has to do with using, doing things to get people to, to work for you. We're doing things, saying things. Flattery usually in our context has to do with I say flattering things to you, butter somebody up. This is more expansive than that. There's not a great English translation. It's like flat. It's like flattery in words and actions. Doing things to build someone up, but ultimately because it benefits me. He said that's, that's not what we're doing. We are not on a mission to experience to garner the praise of man. And mentioned that's a heavy emphasis here because in that day, that was a big deal. The praise of man, a big deal. And that's the second thing that I want to briefly talk about. An intoxicating yet deadly pursuit. We even have, by the way, ancient witness to people trying to conjure up praise of man by rhetoricians telling crowds to clap for them. Praise of man. And here's the thing about praise of man. Anyone who's honest knows how good the praise of man and affirmation and being honored feels. You are such an amazing fill in the blank. You are so good at this. Oh, you have helped this and that over and over, oh, and, and, and it's p- giving people, uh, getting praise and honor and glory in one sense is, I would say, one of the highest highs when it's done well and in the right context, one of the highest highs that you can get in this life. 
The spectrum of enjoying praise of man goes all the way down to pathetic little attempts to enjoy praise of man, like a social media, like, oh, they gave me a little praise, took a picture of my dinner, someone liked it. Little praise of man's, oh, just the tiniest little dopamine hit, little affirmation for this, all the way up to the most glorious and the most honorific. I mean, I remember it, I hate to use another gladiator reference, but it's one of my favorite movies ever. Remember in the, the very last scene, right before he goes up to fight, Emperor goes down there in the bottom, and you can hear the crowds chanting. What are they chanting? Maximus. Maximus. That's what the emperor says. He wants that glory. Why aren't they saying his name? So he decides to do something about it. I won't ruin the movie. He he tries to do something about it. But there you have Maximus ascend out of the floor. Glory. People praising him. Praise of man. Very large spectrum. There's nothing wrong with affirming and praising and honoring people, brothers and sisters. There's not. We should. We should. There's nothing, and there's nothing wrong with acknowledging how good it feels to be so acknowledged, praised, and honored. If you don't, if you didn't do that, we'd all know you're lying. We'd all know it. You wouldn't even have to raise your hand and admit it. We'd all know you're lying. And that's why. Paul is so, so careful to say we didn't come for this particular reason, particularly because it was so popular to do at that time for these traveling speakers. But folks, it's no less popular today. We just achieve it different ways. There are so many people who seek the praise of man as a coping mechanism There's so many people who seek the praise of man because that's where they find true self-esteem in other approval and affirmation of them. They crave it. That's the problem. It's not admitting that it feels good. It's not desiring affirmation that your life isn't off the rails. It's craving the approval and the praise and the honor and glory of man. And what I want to say, if you are in Christ, you have a kind of affirmation and blessing proclaimed over you that the praise of man cannot hold a candle to. You don't need to be anyone. You don't need to be big time or something, all right? Jesus was big time for you. And one day, 1 Peter says, in a way that I don't totally understand, so don't ask me, but he says the tested genuineness of your faith will result in you being pra- in you you being praised and gloried and honored by God not spiritually not figuratively but it will result in you you being praised and honored and gloried in by God in a way that ultimately brings him even more glory. And so maybe you phrase it this way. I don't want you to try to bring about guaranteed future praise and honor and glory by fawning after it now, trying to prematurely achieve that by manufacturing poor, dim replacements as band-aids for wounded self-esteem or cultural snake oil to numb your hurting life. Please don't turn to that. It's such an innocuous drug. There's so many things you could turn to and people would 
out as that's unhealthy. But it's so easy to turn to praise of man and in many cases, no one even notices. Remember who you are, not who you have to try to be. Remember who you are. And imitating Paul as the Thessalonians did, do not fall victim to being a slave of the praise of man and fawning after people's acceptance and praise and affirmation. The last antithesis, he says, we didn't seek glory. We could have made demands as apostles, but we chose not to. Instead, listen to this. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, our own selves, because you had become so dear to us. The vast majority of commentators recognize that this is the most pastorally tender language in all of Paul's writing. Now that word gentle there in your text, you have a superscript number, almost, no doubt, Takes you down to the bottom, there's an alternate word there, and it's infants. It's infants. Um, I do actually think that that is a better word to be there, and so does the vast uh, majority. The vast majority. So do quite a few scholars. Why? Well, because again, we're looking for a contrast. Verse 6, we did not seek glory, but we were gentle. Does gentleness contrast with seeking glory? It's like, mm, not really. I mean, you might seek glory by being so gentle. The manuscript evidence has infants here, which sounds very bizarre, infants, but infants is a better contrast because he's talking about the con- there's already been a context of pure motives, and infants don't know how to seek glory. You say, well, that would change up the metaphor. In just one second, he's going to go on to a nursing mother. How could be? Okay, fair enough. He changes metaphors all the time. In the next passage, he's going to change up to a father with his children. Paul apparently doesn't care about having mixed imagery to convey what he's trying to convey. And finally, a scribe would be much more likely to change from infants to gentle because it's an easier reading. Where in textual criticism, when you're trying to get back to what the original artifact said, you prefer the more difficult reading. The more difficult reading is more likely to be original because a scribe would be more likely to give an easier reading in a copy. For all those reasons, I do think infant is the best translation. We were like infants among you. We were innocent among you. We were pure among you. But then you get the gentleness thrown right back in like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The word there is trophos. It's not mater, which is usually used. It's a word that's usually associated with a wet nurse. With a wet nurse. That is to say someone who would breastfeed young It's properly understood to be a mother here. It's taking care of her own children. But this is a nursing mother. And I just want you, out of of all the pictures you could imagine, the one he chooses here was, I was like a mother nursing her children with you. That was my disposition towards you. That's That's how we loved you. That was the level of tenderness and gentleness that we wanted to, to have with you and over you. And not only that, being affectionately desirous of you, so much so we were ready to share not only the gospel of God, fair, we share the gospel everywhere, but there was more. There was something else. We wanted to do something else. We wanted to share with you our own selves. It's like the, the, the word there is like the core of who we were. 
We don't want to just share things. We want to share our souls. We want to share us with you because you had become that dear to us. That's what he says to the Thessalonians. This brings me to the last point here. Offering ourselves, not merely our help and our giftedness. What does it mean to share yourself with others if it doesn't mean helping them out when they need using your gifts to enrich them? Both are great, but they're also very functional, aren't they? That's how I share my life. I, I uh, jump in when there's a need. I show up when there's an event. I've met a, quite a few people who struggle in this space, and there's, there's multiple reasons for it. Uh, some, some people know how to share relational space so long they're, as they're in a helping role, a serving role, a benevolent performance role, but they struggle with just sharing their life with others outside of a very concrete, well-defined agenda. Have to have the roles clear. I, our relationship is characterized by me helping them, them helping me. They have to have these categories, and it's like, well, this person doesn't seem like they need a lot of help. This person doesn't seem like they this and that. What do I have to offer them? How do I behave towards someone who apparently doesn't need my, my help? I'm used to being accepted relationally because I help, because I serve, because I bring X, Y, or Z to bear. And if that person doesn't need X, Y, Z, I'm relationally without. What, what good am I? I don't think they have anything to offer. Other struggles to share their very selves with others because it requires relational vulnerability, and that opens you up to being hurt. But if that's the case, then that means that sharing your very self with someone is going to require some relational courage, which is the one of the under-discussed features of relationship. You must have courage because there is a chance if you are vulnerable with someone, you're going to feel shame. I could feel shame. I need to have courage. I got to be vulnerable. You have to have a strong sense of identity. If you're someone fawning after the praise of man, in every man, relationships like that are going to be a dangerous place for you. Unless you just someone want someone who just never tells you the truth. You want to, you know, always hang around a bunch of sycophants. No one wants to do that. No one should want to do that. I should say. If you add all those things up, people say, "This is not worth it." That was a lot of stuff you just said there. This is not worth it. I'll just kind of ride things out by myself. Others struggle with sharing their lives with others just because it's inconvenient. There's some people, just for a variety of reasons, some better than others, some more understandable than others, some related to personality, for better or worse, they need to be in their system, their framework, their schedule, and to share one's life with others is to lose a little bit of your life. When you might want to be allocating that time, that space even, in a, in a different way. In other words, it requires being selfless. So if all these things are the case, why share your life? Sounds like dangerous business that takes a lot of work. In one sense, it is. Why not merely share your gifts and your aid with others? I want to close very briefly with five reasons. Five reasons to share your life. Not just the gospel. Not just being the teacher. Not just your fix-it skills. But your very life.
The first is just understanding the ministry of presence and companionship. The ministry of presence. You know what that is? It's the ministry of just, you guessed it, presence. Don't know what to say when someone's crying? You don't have to. You can just be present. To be with. I'm with you. You're not alone. I want to be here even if I don't know what to say. What if there's air in the conversation and we stare? Who cares? We can be together. We can just be together. I've talked with so many people who in quiet moments have admitted that there are times when even when people when they would love someone just to be there, even if they weren't even saying anything, just someone to be there, just to be present. Just so they weren't alone, just so they could have some companionship. Outside of any agenda, don't underestimate just the ministry of showing up. You can minister to people by showing up, just being there. That's one good reason to share your life with people. And I don't mean showing up when there's a need. I just mean showing up, doing life, being around. We talk about that for a long time. It relates to even the example application that we had last week. The ministry of presence and companionship to sweeten someone else's life apart from any of your giftedness. Just a loving presence. Number two, there's the joy of celebrating other people. Everyone knows that there is a particular joy of celebrating somebody. Everyone, of course, loves being celebrated themselves. That's dipping into the praise of man pool. In one sense, that's fine. But there's also a deep fulfillment with celebrating other people. I love celebrating other people. I love being a cheerleader for other people. Sometimes it's over the top, I admit. But I do. You share life with somebody. You can celebrate the, not just the huge milestones you see on social media or that you get an update on. You can celebrate the small things that you see because you're in their home. They're in your home. You're... you're Talking with one another regularly, you can celebrate the quality of someone's parenting, celebrate the quality of someone's marriage, celebrate the robustness of somebody's faith. You can celebrate other people when you share life in that way. And it's not just celebrating milestones like birthdays and graduations, it's celebrating people and what God is doing in people's lives. That's one of the things that you can do if you share yourself. Number three, the life on life sharpening that occurs. This is, the, this is the most interesting one for the people who think, well, I don't have anything to offer relationally. Because we have the well-worn proverb of iron sharpening iron and one man sharpens another. Well, do you want to be sharpened? Maybe that person doesn't need anything from you. But that doesn't mean that they can't be sharpened by you and that doesn't mean that you can't sharpen them. The, the co-presence of two pieces of iron are going to, if, if they hit each other, they're going to sharpen without these intentional moments of, do you know this Bible verse that was on my mind for you? Here it is. Here's this acute moment of sharpening, and I'm delivering it to you right now. No, you can sharpen someone just being around them. You will be sharpened by sharing your life with other people, by sharing your very self, by being, by, by just having a disposition of love and affection for someone and then acting on that to simply be present, to share your life with them. Number four, the gift of offered neediness. Remember Ed Welch said this in one of his books. Some of you know who Ed Welch is. He said, the gift of your neediness appropriately offered 
to someone else can be one of the most powerful ways for you to minister to them. Now, that is a counterintuitive claim. It's a very counterintuitive claim. What is he getting at? He is talking about the fulfillment of other people when they get to use their gifts, their abilities, the narrative within which God has situated them to do ministry in particularly unique ways. If you are always around someone who never seems to need anything, regardless whether they do or some of or maybe more particularly, they don't need anything from you. There will be a tendency again to say, why engage? Why engage? But do you have, do you have any neediness? I don't mean being a relational parasite. That's not what I mean. I mean that entering your neediness appropriately and wisely offered provides people opportunities to use their gifts and abilities and their narrative to come alongside you in a way that they would never have if you weren't there. That's what I'm saying. I know it's a counterintuitive principle, but I've seen it over and over and over. In fact, we have a microcosm of that even in our own church where if people don't perceive a neediness in a particular area of our church, like the children's volunteers who teach our children's Sunday school class that we're about to have to revamp totally in just a little bit, there's no perceived neediness. There's no one who's jumping for action, even though you might be a great teacher. Relationally, it's it's a very similar thing. There are people who would love to minister to someone to meet a particular need, but they don't find themselves around such people. So if you can offer your neediness well to the right people in sober-mindedness and wisdom, it will be a blessing both to you and, and to that person. The gift of neediness offered well and wisely can be a tremendous blessing to both people. And then finally, this is the fulfillment of being known deeply and loved anyways. One pastor says, to be known superficially and loved is comforting, but it's just that, superficial. To be known truly and deeply but rejected is shame. That's the deepest, no, no one wants that. But to be known truly and loved anyways is what everyone's looking for. Now, we ultimately find that in Christ, but there are dim reflections all around this room. Does it take courage to be known deeply and loved anyways? Yes. Yes. But it will enrich your soul, and it will make you a better lover of God and people if you will but have the courage to do it. And you'll feel the value of doing it. Take inventory of your own soul, your own life, your schedule, your personality, whatever it is. I'm not offering simplistic solutions or prescriptions. And ask myself, is there a way to share my life with other people in accordance with some of these things? Paul's conduct in Thessalonica was characterized by pure motives and selfless, selfless love. Ours should be too. Let's pray. God, we confess that so often we like to do the easy thing, the comfortable thing, not necessarily the wisest or the right thing in church and job and our relationships. We have fears, we have social anxieties, 
We have insecurities that we're desperately trying to fill, perhaps with the praise and affirmation of other people. Lord, I pray that you would guard us as a body, guard our flock, guard our hearts against cowardice relationally, guard our hearts against fawning for the praise and affirmation of men and women. Help us be a church that encourages and affirms while we are the same church that takes our affirmation and encouragement in terms of our identity in Christ Jesus. I want to pray that some of these things will be thoughtfully considered. When people would ask themselves candid questions, could they be a powerful minister to other people and they don't even know it because they've never given it a chance? Pray that you would release those people in this room for the ministry, for the building up of the body in our own church, Lord. Work in our, all of our hearts toward that end. We ask it.